Uh, thank you very much uh, there to the Urbina family. That was absolutely beautiful. What a blessing, yes? I was just mentioning to Brother John Gusky before we came out. I said, there are many a times when I'm sitting up here, and I don't want the music to stop. You know, I want the music to keep going on uh, because music reaches parts of the soul that words cannot. And so thank you so much to the Urbina family. We celebrate with you your father's baptism. And uh, we look forward to the day when all things, uh, we walk on those streets of gold and um, all the troubles of this life are over. So thank you for that beautiful music. Um, it's a privilege to stand before you here today. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> to be frank, I'm a little bit nervous about this, but never mind. Uh, I, I realize that preaching changes lives, and um, I preached a sermon here last January, and my life changed after that. And so, uh, normally when the preacher preaches, he hopes that the congregation's life will change, but my life changed after that particular sermon. So, <clears throat> um, today, uh, our sermon is entitled, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And for those of you who are watching online, we give you a warm welcome. Now, uh, uh, the PowerPoint for this particular presentation is on our village website, villagesta.org forward slash liberty. And if you scroll down, uh, there are two little download buttons, and one of those is the PowerPoint for this presentation. Um, and then there is another document I'm going to refer to in the sermon here that I think everybody should be reading, an appeal to the Christians of America. It's a very powerful document. Um, but our sermon today is entitled Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And um, I'm going to be uh, ju just reflecting on the fact that um, history does repeat itself. And we are doomed to repeat the failures and mistakes of history if we do not take the time to study history for ourselves. Uh, because humanity does not change. Um, the human condition has not changed much in the last 6,000 years. Otherwise, may, other, other than say maybe it's gone downhill, morally speaking. Um, but I don't think we're getting better as a human race. Uh, when uh, our family was growing up, uh, my daughter used to like watching the Avonlea series. And if you've ever seen the Avonlea series, it's a bit like Anne of Green Gables. It's set in Prince Edward Island in Canada in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. And what you notice there is that the younger people are always enthused about the latest technology, the telegraph, the telephone, the steam engine, running water, inside toilets, and so forth and so forth, and the advances of medicine. And you know, watching the series, that 1914 is just around the corner. And with our ever-increasing technology, it doesn't make us morally better. It just means we can kill more efficiently. And as you watch this series, knowing what's about to happen to those young people, because one of them signs off to join the British Navy uh, at the outbreak of hostilities in 1914, you realize that all their optimism about the human condition and the advances of technology are not going to play out in quite the way that they expected. So our sermon today is entitled Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And um, I did a lot of research for this particular sermon. Um, I read this book here called Harvest of Sorrow. It's a fascinating story from Oxford University Press. It talks about um, what happened in the Ukrainian Holodmor, the starvation of the Ukrainians in 1929 through 32. And while my son was home for Christmas, I wrote, read, a, no, I didn't write, I read a book called The Great Terror. Um, which is what Stalin did to the Soviets, the Soviet people in 1937-39, where he wiped out millions of his own people. And uh, then I also read the biography of Stalin here, which is a fascinating story. And um, I'd encourage you uh, to spend time learning history, um, because uh, then you can understand what is happening today. 
the attempt to eliminate and wipe out and erase a nation's history is merely an attempt to prepare it for a, a system of totalitarianism in the future. When people don't know who they are, when they don't know where they come from, they're much more open to suggestion and to the imposition of evil. And so uh, I invite you to bow your heads with me and we're going to open with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we're grateful today for the liberty we have to share this Sabbath day together. Father, I thank you that you brought us through this pandemic. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and health and strength. Thank you that we indeed may reason together. I pray, Lord, that as we share here this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move upon us, that we may not just increase in knowledge, for knowledge produces a clashing symbol, but we may increase in love for our brothers and sisters and one for another. So, Father, bless us now with the gift of your Holy Spirit. May your angels guard this place of worship and speak through me as my humble prayer. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So when we think of heaven, uh, most people would like to go to heaven. I've yet to meet somebody who, if they believe in the concept of heaven, doesn't want to go to heaven. And yet there's a striking thing that in the Scripture, there is a very famous verse, Revelation 12 and verse 7, that says, And there was what in heaven? War. And it's a kind of a jarring note that there was war in heaven. We don't like the idea that there is war in heaven. And we're kind of glad that that war was in the past. You know, at the start of the great controversy where Satan challenges our Heavenly Father. But the idea that there was war in heaven is something that jars our thinking. Now, the word that the Apostle John uses there, uh, he says, kai uh, agneto polemos. Polemos. And we get the English word polemic from that. That word that is translated war in heaven is the word that we use when we say polemic or polemical. And a polemic is not necessarily a physical battle, but it's a struggle about ideas. And so we might say that what was happening in war, it may not have been a physical war, but it was a struggle about ideas. And struggles about ideas relate to the nature of truth. And because God himself is truth, and Jesus is the truth, and his throne is founded on truth, therefore this war in heaven revolved around the character of God. Now, it was an ideological war, and I'm aware of the fact that it's 1242, <clears throat> and so I'm humbly pleading with um, those who are preparing such a wonderful meal for us, please be patient with us this morning. <clears throat> this is where we're going to go today, introduction yesterday, today, tomorrow, and then our conclusions. One of my favorite writers is Solzhenitsyn, and this is what he says, reflecting on the nature of ideology. He says this, to do evil... A human must first of all believe that what he is doing is good, or else that it is a well-considered act in conformity with a natural law, that is, an ideology. That's what gives evildoing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. This is the social theory which helps to make his act seem good instead of bad in his own and others' eyes so that he won't bear reproaches and curses, but will receive praises and honors. Ideology justifies evil. And if your ideology or your, your system of thinking is divorced from Scripture, 
then you are going to engage in evil because ideology requires and um, uh, excuses evil in the eyes of the perpetrator. Ideology justifies evil in the eyes of the evildoer, it silences their doubts, and it leads to applause from those around who share in the same ideology. And Solzhenitsyn's essential insight here is that ideology fortifies the will to do evil, it silences the conscience in order for the perpetrator to do yet more evil. It self-justifies the evildoer. And so today we're going to look at uh, yesterday, we're going to look at an ideology and the suffering it caused. We're going to look at an ideology that is in play right today. And we're going to look prophetically at what we know is going to happen before Jesus comes again. Three separate but linked ideologies that are taking place around us. So yesterday, what was happening yesterday? Well, I'm going to go back in time here. About 90 years ago, so one lifetime ago, I want to take us back to uh, the former Soviet Union. 1932, 1933, millions and millions of people lay dying of starvation in a man-made famine stretching from the Ukraine all the way across the northern Caucasus to uh, Kazakhstan and Central Asia. Those who remained alive did not have the strength to bury the victims. Many people simply lay down in their homes, in their villages, and they waited to die. The widow of Zarephath's story, where a woman said, this is my last meal, I will eat it and then I will die, was repeated in literally millions of households across the Soviet Union. These victims were supervised by well-fed squads of Soviet Communist Party officials, and this was the climax of what Stalin called the revolution from above, in which approximately 15 million people perished. It was perhaps the single largest crime in human history. Uh, there is a saying in the former Soviet Union, who was Adolf Hitler? He was a minor dictator in the time of Joseph Stalin. And so Adolf Hitler may have killed his millions, but Joseph Stalin killed his tens of millions. So how did this come about? Why did this happen? Well, after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, Lenin and then Stalin had viewed the peasantry of Russia and the Soviet Union with suspicion and with ideological contempt. Most of the peasants were orthodox. They didn't buy into the new atheist ideology. Stalin and Lenin's focus was on the factories and the workers in the cities, and they had little understanding of how an agricultural sector actually worked. Hence, every Soviet strategy, the, the five-year plan, the new economic plan, the great step forward, and all the rest of it, these were attempts to make reality conform with ideology, and sooner or later, when reality, when reality is forced to abide by an ideology, reality, reality will exert itself once again. It's a bit like body odor. No matter how much you try to cover it up, it eventually leaks out. And so reality will always trump ideology, and Stalin could not make the agricultural sector conform to his socialist ideology. So he decided that he was going to nationalize or to have the state own all of the food production within the Soviet Union. Uh, he wanted to secure the grain supply to the cities, and he also wanted to crush Ukrainian uh, national culture. Now, why was this important? Because Ukraine then, as today, is the breadbasket of much of the world. Now, we exist on about four inches of topsoil around the world. Take away that topsoil, and we're finished as humanity. They say about 25% of the world's topsoil is in the borders of the Ukraine. It's a very, very valuable 
part of planet Earth. So how did Lenin and then Stalin go about this process? Well, they rekindled a revolutionary war spirit, and they argued that they, they, they invented a class enemy called the Kulaks. Now, the concept of a Kulak was a very, very fluid concept, and uh, Lenin argued that the Kulaks were rich peasants who exploited the poorer peasants by lending money to them at uh, high interest rates and impoverishing their neighbors. That was the ideological justification. These are the rich peasants exploiting or oppressing the poor peasants. Uh, in reality, life was much more complex. You see, if a poor peasant with no animals managed to have a good harvest for maybe two years and managed to buy himself a a cow or a horse, he then became a kulak. And once he achieved a kulak status in, in Marxist ideology, he now had what they called kulak class consciousness, which was ineradicable. Once you have that class consciousness, according to Lenin and Stalin, no matter how impoverished you were, you were now a kulak and you were an enemy of the state. It also happened that if you were a devout orthodox peasant, you were probably going to be classified as a kulak. And so uh, under Stalin, the policy of demonizing the kulaks, which started to, place under, to start to take place under Lenin, it shifted to a policy of extermination. These are some of the books uh, you can meet. We may want to read these books. It's a fascinating history. This is what Stalin said in 29. He said, we have gone from a policy of limiting the exploiting tendencies of the kulak to a policy of liquidating the kulak as a class. And so in 1929 to 1932, Stalin struck a triple-headed blow at the peasants of the United, of, not the United States, the USSR. The, the first stage was dekulakization. The second uh, stage was forced collectivization, that is, eliminating all the pro private property and forcing people into collective farms. And the third was a holodmor, as we now know it, or the man-made famine. Now, um, the, de the first stage, dekulakization, meant that the, the kulaks were demonized in the official media. The official newspaper of the Soviet Union, or the Politburo, was known as Pravda, which ironically means truth. And it was basically a pack of lies. And so when the Pravda editors understood what Stalin wanted to do, they decided to demonize this class of society who previously everybody just viewed as their neighbor. This was ideologically driven fake news. It's nothing new. And the kulaks were demonized. They were called scum and terrorists. And uh, uh, the Pravda argued that they needed to be exterminated. And there were calls for them to be removed from society because they represented the last class enemy before they could achieve a perfect socialist state. So then in 1929, having demonized the kulaks, Stalin started a process of extermination. Uh, many families were simply deported to the northern areas of the Arctic, where they were left in, in hard labor camps. Many of them died. Uh, the children were rounded up, and they were put into open-area camps and simply left to starve. Uh, and many people were simply shot in their farms. Um, it was a process that created terror across the, across the former Soviet Union. And um, there is actually uh, one of the documents on our website, um, villagesta.org forward slash liberty. There's an incredible story of a group of Christians in Ukraine who were praying and said, what do you, Lord, what do you want us to do? And they could see what was going to happen. And they started having dreams and visions that you need to leave Ukraine. You need to go east. You need to go east. And many of them went east. And as they were going east, somebody said, no, I want to go back to the Ukraine because my home is there and it's comfortable there. So they did. And they perished in the process.
And those Christians kept moving east, 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 east. They came to what was then nationalist China. And when they arrived in nationalist China, they thought God has brought us to a place of safety, but they kept having dreams and God kept saying to them, go forward, go forward. And many stayed in China where they were overtaken by the Red Army in Mao Zedong, and they also perished. And those who kept going went on to Taiwan, Formosa or Taiwan, then they made their way to Canada. And the testimony of those Christians, you can now download from our church website. And it's an appeal to Christians today that says, do not think that just because you have material comfort today, it's always going to be there. And do not think that an otherwise seemingly benign government today, wherever you happen to live, will always be benign to people of faith. If God calls you to leave, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family, if God calls you to leave, you need to go forward and not look back as did Lot's wife. It's a fascinating story. It's called an appeal to the Christians of America. Everybody should read it, and you can download it from our website. Millions were simply shot, starved, or deported to concentration camps in the north. Stalin issued a decree allowing for the legal execution of children 12 and above. Why the age 12? Because according to the Marxist ideologues, they said a child has achieved Kulak class consciousness by the age of 12. So if your father has a cow, or your mother has a horse, that means you're a slightly better off peasant. That means by the age of 12, you have this ineradicable class consciousness. You are forever an enemy of the state and any of the people. Therefore, the state is authorized to just execute you at the age of 12. And this happened in very large numbers. A Soviet no novel in 1934 summarized the attitude of the Soviet Communist Party towards the Kulaks. This is what they wrote. They said, talking about the Kulaks, it said, not one of them was guilty of anything but they belonged to a class that was guilty of everything. Now this idea that you are judged not by the content of your character, but by the social group by which you belong is alive and well today. Amen. It's everywhere. The irony is that this Monday we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, who argued that he dreamt of a day when we would be judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. And while we still celebrate Martin Luther King Day, we have totally inverted his, his, his teachings in our universities. Now we say you are judged by the group that you are a part of, whether you're straight or gay, etc., or whether you're black or white, or whether you're cis or whether you're trans. Those are some modern examples. And now you are judged as, as good in society or intrinsically evil in society based on the group to which you belong. And you might say, well, so what this novel said about um, uh, the Kulaks applies to us today. Not one of them was guilty of anything in certain groups, even though they're demonized in our modern society, but they belonged to a class or a group that was guilty of everything. After the de-Kulakization was the forced collectivization, this uh, gathered all the people's property and animals into collective farms. The peasants didn't want it, and they killed their animals by the millions rather than allow Stalin to get his hands on their animals. And so Stalin rounded up the peasants and he put them into what were known as sovhozes or kolhozes. And when I used to work in the Soviet Union, I used to visit many of these old collective farms, and they're very run down. You would not want to work in one of those places. Once in those collective plant, uh, farms, the Communist Party paid people almost nothing for a day's work. But they set impossibly high food production targets. And those, high, those targets were, were deliberately impossibly high. And so if a peasant was found, for instance, walking home from the field, and they saw a nettle at the side of the road, and they picked that nettle so they could make nettle soup at home, that peasant would be executed because they were stealing state property. 
Any peasant caught, caught eating food beyond their ration was simply executed. Many party leaders from the Ukraine made it clear to Stalin that these targets were unrealistic, but Stalin ruthlessly enforced the food production targets. Police, militia, and soldiers were sent in to simply take the food out of the Ukraine and from the collective farms and the entire countryside, and millions were left to starve to death. It was a man-made famine. Peasants were expelled from the towns so they wouldn't become a burden on the food supply. The Communist Party banned anybody from bringing food into the Ukraine to increase, to, to reduce the famine's severity. Some Western Christians tried to send food into that part of the world, and the Communists stopped the food from arriving. Mass famine ensued and millions perished. Now, this was a widely known catastrophe. Communist Party officials, Komsomol members, Komsomol, uh, the Komnichesky um, Soyuzny Malajozny, that's the, the Union of Communist Young People, it's like the um, Boy Scouts, I guess, today. Um, they were the youth arm of the Communist Party. They sent the Komsomol members out into the Ukraine, and they, would, they were taking part in the stealing of the food from the people. Uh, party activists went out. Foreign journalists knew about it, and so did ambassadors. Everybody knew of the truth of the famine, but nobody could talk about it. In fact, Stalin made it illegal to even mention the possibility in the Soviet Union that there was a famine going on. Now, Stalin knew exactly what was going on. Here's a picture of his wife, Nadia Aleluyeva. Najesta, it means hope, ironically. Uh, she was a Bolshevik revolutionary along with Joseph Stalin. And uh, she was feeling kind of a bit bored. So Stalin suggested she take a course in textile production, which she did. When she went to the technical school to learn about textile production, she met a lot of young people who just participated in the dekulakization and the forced collectivization in, the, in Ukraine, and they told her what was happening. They told her the horrors of the cannibalism, of the children being rounded up and shot or simply left to starve to death. They told her the horrors of whole cities or towns where everybody was just dead of starvation. And it, it, it horrified Najesda, and so she confronted Stalin about it. He argued that she was simply falling for Trotskyite propaganda, or fake news as we would say today, but he made sure that his wife never heard about that again. What did he do? He purged every student from every college who'd participated in the decolonization and the collectivization. What does that mean? It means they were sent to hard labor camps or simply executed by the tens of thousands. This quarrel between Stalin and Nadezhda, or Nadia, appears to have been the cause of her suicide in early November 1932. And what of us in the West? Well, the diplomatic corps knew the truth. We know that now from the diplomatic cables that were coming back to the West. The Western journalists also knew the truth. However, many journalists and academics eager to apologize for Marxist ideology routinely covered up the truth and parroted the lies of the Soviet Communist Party. The most egregious example was Mr. Walter Durante, the New York Times special correspondent in Moscow. He won praise from Stalin and a Pulitzer for his reporting, which he steadfastly denied that there was any terrible events going on in Ukraine or in the Soviet Union, and he denied that millions were dying, and he denied that there was a famine. Ideologically driven fake news was alive then as it is today. Be careful what you watch. So how then do we kind of break down these terrible events? Well, I put together a chart. I like putting charts together. It helps me kind of summarize things. So the dominant ideology was Marxism. The source of that dominant ideology was Marx, and I believe that Marx 
wasn't so much an atheist as a Satanist. Um, there's good evidence for that. The scope of the ambition was global revolution along class lines. The nature of the social divide, like which group are we going to demonize? It was along economic lines, and the demonized group at the time was the Kulaks. Um, who were the persecutors? They were the members of the Komsomol, the Communist Youth Wing, and members of the Soviet Party. And uh, the outcome? Dekulakization deaths, estimated 6.5 million. Kazakh starvation deaths, 1 million. Ukrainian famine deaths, 7 million. Approximately 14.5 to 15 million deaths. Now, those are the deaths. That's not including the tens of million people who were deported, exiled, lost their family members, had their lives destroyed by this ideology. Be grateful that we live in America. And be grateful that this pernicious ideology has not yet overtaken our nation. So what about today? Well, today, <clears throat> that Marxist ideology has morphed into what we politely call cultural Marxism. And then this has multiple manifestations, and it's all around us. And if you listen to our Sabbath School panel today, you heard a reference to the gender ideology that's now being pushed in the universities of the West, and particularly here, the universities in America. Now, cultural critical theory um, essentially says that there are oppressors and there are oppressed groups in society, and this is all based around power relationships and a social justice warrior is one who seeks to undo that oppression to equalize the power relationships within society. And of course, there's, there's a pyramid of victimhood and a hierarchy of victimhood within the, 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 the oppressed groups. And so you have the oppression Olympics where everybody wants to collect as many, as many oppression points as they can. Why? Because in critical theory thinking, um, the oppressors see the world from their perspective, but the oppressed see the world from their perspective and from the oppressor's perspective. It's known as standpoint epistemology. And the net result of that is that the oppressed always have a greater say in society and more insight than the oppressors. All right, that's how it works. So the, the more oppressed you are, the more victim points you can gather into yourself, the more authoritative your voice is now within society. And so we, we could talk about various dimensions about this. Um, there, are, there are various aspects. There's critical theory, critical gender theory, LGBTQ studies, post-colonial studies, fat studies. There's a whole bunch of these studies out there. I just want to reflect on just one of them here for a moment, few minutes here today. And this is a direct outgrowth of critical theory and uh, Marxist ideology, and that is known as critical race theory. And uh, if you say, well, why are you talking about this past divine? Well, I'd say this, there is racism in America. It's absolutely true. And if you don't believe me, I would ask every white parent, would you rather your son be born white or black in America? That's the truth. There is racism. Now, as you go around every society on Earth, you see that ethnic and racial hatred is always present. I've yet to find a society that does not have ethnic and racial hatred. So it does exist. It's a manifestation of the fallen human condition, our desire to draw onto our group and to demonize or to otherize another group. It's part of the fallen human condition. But critical race theory takes this a step further, and it views racism through the lens of Marxist ideology. What they say is, and uh, the t the, it was founded by a tenured uh, law professor at Harvard, Professor Derek Bell, uh, the first African-American tenured law professor at Harvard. And it's been um, pushed by other writers like D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and so forth. But there are certain key elements of critical race theory. The first is this, that racism is permanently entrenched in every social structure in the United States and that racism is present in every single social interaction. Your job as a critical race theorist is not to 
um, say whether there is racism or not. Your job is to um, articulate how that racism is manifesting itself. So the assumption is everything is racist. Now, of course, if I say that this church is racist, uh, uh, then am I talking about the church or the building? If I say that the members are racist, that means we need a, in a congregation to have a change of heart. But if you talk about systemic racism, what you mean is not just is the congregation racist, but the building itself is structurally racist, therefore the whole structure needs to be taken down. That's the goal, is to eliminate our Bill of Rights and our Constitution and replace it with a Marxist superstate. That's why we have systemic, because then the whole system has to be replaced. So the permanence of racism is one of the teachings. Whiteness as property, the argument that every white person is complicit in racism because we possess this mysterious quality known as whiteness. And um, then there's um, counter-storytelling, another belief. Um, this challenges the experiences of predominantly white Caucasian Americans. Um, and their normative standards. So, for instance, being on time, telling the truth, working to provide for your family, are now viewed as being components of what is described as white supremacy. Rather, critical race theory promotes storytelling by oppressed minorities to challenge this, the, well, the alleged dominant white supremacy. There is also the rejection of liberalism and the Enlightenment. Uh, so, Critical race theory rejects um, standardized testing in schools. It rejects uh, the idea of meritocracy. It rejects the idea of being colorblind in, say, admissions procedures for institutions or for jobs. It rejects the very concept of equality before the law or of equal opportunity. That's important, because if you believe in equal opportunity, then you must accept unequal outcome. All right? You cannot have equal opportunity in a society and have equal outcome. If you have equal opportunity, some people will take their equal opportunities and become a drunkard or an alcohol addict, or alcohol, uh, alcohol addict or a drug addict, and they're going to blow their lives away, and some people work hard and get ahead in life. So equal opportunity isn't what critical race theory seeks for. Rather, um, equity, which is identical outcome, is what it seeks, which is essentially a communist system. Uh, critical race theory rejects legal reasoning, rationalism, and and the neutrality of constitutional law. It also teaches the, what is known as the interest conversion hypothesis. This is a particularly per, um, pernicious teaching. What it says is that when a white person helps a black person, and I'm speaking crudely here today, but please forgive me, when a white person helps a black person, they only do so in order to perpetuate white supremacy and white oppression of blacks. That's what the interest convergence hypothesis. That means my interests converge with white supremacy interests. Now, the logical conclusion to that is that white people are by definition evil, and you either have segregation or you have extermination. That's the logical conclusion of the interest convergence hypothesis. This is why in some colleges now we see race-segregated graduation services. Race-segregated dormitories are now reappearing in America that out of our civil rights movement, we've morphed into this cultural Marxism that says one ethnic group cannot be in the presence of another ethnic group because one ethnic group is systemically oppressing the other. But as I look at this congregation today, and I see people from every nation, tribe, language, and people, I say, praise the Lord. Amen. That the kingdom of God says that we, are to, we can and we will transcend that which Satan has cast, sowed in our midst to divide us, we can love our brother and our sister because there is only one race, and that is the human race. We're not multiple races. And so critical race theory also rejects the concept of truth as an objective reality, as being a product of Western philosophy. It rejects heterosexual marriage in favor of queer marriage, and it also rejects the concept of the nuclear family. And I would say that in response to that, that maybe one of the largest problems we have in America today is the problem of fatherless boys.
and that cuts across all ethnic groups. And as we see divorce rates growing in every ethnic group, we are seeing the rise of fatherless boys. And boys need fathers. Boys need fathers to guide them and to mentor them and to grow them. But critical race theory rejects the concept of the need of a father and argues that the, the, the boy should be raised by the community and preferably a queered community. So this is what we see being taught in our colleges. This is what is happening uh, across uh, the, the thought leaders of the West today, pushing. This is just one aspect of critical theory. Uh, there are other aspects, as was mentioned in Sab schools, such as critical gender theory. Now, the good news of scripture in response to this is clear. We're all created in the image of God. Everybody is an image bearer. And so when God said to Cain, Cain, where is thy brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is no, you're his brother. He's not you're not just his keeper, you're his brother. You have a moral responsibility to look out for your brother, regardless of who they are, because we are all created in the image of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And at the foot of Calvary were represented all branches of the human family. And why do I say that? Because Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, the family of, of Ham was represented by Simon of Cyrene coming from North Africa. The centurion was from the descendants of Japheth being a Roman. And the thief on the cross being Jewish represented the descendants of Shem. So at the foot of the cross, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth all found their salvation. The centurion, the thief, and Simon of Cyrene. All parts of the human race are in equally desperate need of God's salvation. None has any prior claim to that salvation or acts prior, prior claim to God. And God longs to meet with the saved of the earth drawn from every nation, tribe, language, and people. Which is why I rejoice to see a congregation drawn from all around the world. This is what the body of Christ should look like. So we are called as individuals in scripture to examine ourselves. And rather than jump on Marxist ideology in its bandwagon, we're actually called as individuals to ask God to give us a change of heart. So that we see our brothers and our sisters with new eyes and we wish for them what we wish for ourselves. And we work for them what we work for for ourselves. The psalmist put it this way, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. And so this prayer of repentance and asking God to change my heart is the Christian response to these ideologies that are floating around out there. The Lord, I'm not just going to reject what these ideologies say because they're pushing atheism and Marxism and the, and the, the demonization of groups in society. Lord, I it's not just enough to reject these things. I need to be a positive ambassador for the kingdom of God. And I need that inner heart change. So I'm not, I'm not just going to be known for I reject this and I reject that. I'm going to be known for the positive presence of the Spirit of God flowing through me like a life-giving stream and with the presence of the agape love of Jesus Christ. And that is what we as Christians are called to do. And that means getting on my knees and saying, Lord, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And I need you to change my heart so I see the next man or woman on the street as you see them. Yeah. And yet, I won't go into this in any great detail, but in colleges all across the West, including Adventist colleges, we're injecting this ideological poison into the bloodstream. 
it will lead to a generation of apostates, a generation of Marxists and atheists, a generation of young people who will reject Jesus Christ. You cannot teach an atheist ideology and expect children and young people not to follow through with the logical consequences. I won't say any more than that, but I think we know what I'm talking about. Every institution, every institution today is going through that internal civil war. Do we stand for scripture? Or are we going to fall for the latest ideology? Every family, every church, every denomination, every department, everybody has to choose where they stand. So if you may put it in that kind of uh, the, the chart I put up before, so the dominant ideology is, was, it was Marxism, now it's cultural Marxism. The source used to be Marx and Satan, it's the same there. The scope of the ambition, it was global revolution along class lines. Now it's the long march to eliminate the Judeo-Christian foundations of the West and impose uh, atheist and, atheism and Marxism upon us. The nature of the social divide, it used to be class-related under, um, under Stalin and Lenin. Now it's racial. If you look at race theory, it's gender. If you look at critical gender theory, it's uh, sexuality and orientation. If you look at LGBTQ studies, all right? There are multiple divides being imposed upon us now. But in particular, in critical race theory, the demonized group has moved from being the kulaks it's now being white, so it could be kulaks to being hetero people or kulaks to being um, people in a heterosexual marriage, for instance. These are the new demonized groups. Uh, those who are the persecutors these days, are no, we no longer have a Komsomol or a Soviet Communist Party, but we now, in terms of critical race theory, we have those who call themselves anti-racist, which means closing down the gospel witness on your campus or in your business or in your society. That's the practical effect of this. And the outcome, it used to be um, simply millions dead. Now, with this, the new um, cultural Marxism, we have cancel culture and the destruction of your professional, personal, social, and financial life. This is very real. And uh, there are people in this congregation today who know the price to be paid for standing up for what you believe, even in institutions that bear an Adventist name. We have cancel culture alive and well today, and it should never be happening. Rather, we should be nurturing and encouraging and championing those who stand for what is right, rather than demonizing them and closing them down because they dare to challenge the atheist ideologies that are swirling around our heads. So then we come to tomorrow. I'm moving fast here because time is moving really on here today, but what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, that same division along ideological lines is coming our way. Now, the bad news is, is that before Jesus comes again, there will be a time of trouble such as never has been before, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. The bad news is there will be persecution of the saints of God before Jesus comes again. We can't change that. So we can't choose to be bystanders in this battle. But when God called Jeremiah to the prophetic ministry, he says, yes, the battle will be fierce, but he says three times to Jeremiah, but I will be with you in the battle. And we need to remember that when Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, it means even during that final time of trouble, that final time of ideological division, we have the assurance that Jesus Christ, the, the, the commander of the armies of heaven, is with his faithful saints. And so that, what does that end time division look like? Well, we're familiar with these passages from Revelation. Then the dragon, that is Satan, was angry with the woman, that is the pure church, went off to make war with the rest of her children. 
Those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, as is written behind me on the back of our church here. And so Satan is making war on God's faithful children all the way to the end of time. If you believe that just because you're a born-again Christian, you're somehow immune from the attacks of Satan, think again. You are the object of Satan's attacks. I was just reading this morning in the book of Job, where Satan is walking to and fro upon the earth as if it's his dominion, and Jesus says, Satan is the prince of this world. As you might say, the globalist powers of our world are ultimately under satanic control. They don't have your best interests at heart. But when, when Satan is walking back and forth upon the earth, God says to Satan twice, he says, yes, he says, I know you're walking to and from the earth as if it's your own. But he said, have you considered my servant Job? That is one faithful man on planet Earth, one faithful woman, is a standing rebuke to Satan and his claims of sovereignty over planet Earth. And that person could be you. And your life and my life is played out before watching worlds, watching universes, and the angels of God and the demons of Satan. Our lives are lived on a much broader canvas than anything we can possibly to imagine. God may be saying even right now in the heavenly councils, have you considered my sister living in Berrien Springs and her faithfulness to me? No, Satan, you do not own planet Earth because there's a brother down there whose heart is true. Your life has cosmic significance. The decisions you make reverberate through eternity and throughout the created cosmos. So Satan is at war with the woman, the, the pure church of God. This is a long text tick. Here, Revelation 13, 1 through 4, which um, all the way through Protestant history has been identified as the papacy. And we're not going to go into all the reasons why Protestants identify this as, a, as the papacy, but whether you are Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or Episcopalian or even Church of England, you will recognize, at least theoretically, that this ver these verses here refer to the papacy that tramples upon conscience. And as we see here, the, 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 the text gives the clue the whole world followed the beast, and they're the bottom. Then it says, they worshipped the dragon, and then they worshipped the beast. So the earth's response to these demonic forces, there's Satan and the papacy that acts under the inspiration of Satan, is of false worship. So we have a clue that the final battle will not be along racial lines, will not, long be, not be along class consciousness lines, it won't be along sexual orientation or gender identity lines, which is what we're dealing with today, it's gonna to be along the issue of worship. And in this last pandemic, we've all had to ask ourselves, who do we trust? So you may ask yourself, has this person ever hurt me in the past? If yes, I'm probably not gonna trust them today. Has this person or institution ever lied to me in the past? If yes, I'm probably not going to trust you today. Would this person be fired for saying anything other than what they are saying right now? If yes, then I'm probably not going to listen to you. The only person that meets all those tests in a positive way is Jesus Christ. And therefore, to love the truth, that is to love Jesus Christ himself as the truth about God and the truth of God, is so important for us as we come to these final days. So we have here the first beast of Revelation 13, and then the second beast of Revelation 13. And I know this is a terrible text, slide with all the text up there, etc., etc. But I'm going to, once again, have the, the question of, and cause those who would not what? What's the verb here? Worship the image of the beast to be killed. So at the end of time, the dividing line in humanity is not racial or ethnic or sexual or gender or economic or political. political. It's along the issue of worship. Who is the supreme authority in your life? 
And in the pandemic, we've all had to ask ourselves, who is the supreme authority in my life? Is it Fauci? Or is it the spirit of truth? Those things are incompatible. The Holy Spirit. Is it the lies of our dominant media? Our lying politicians? You know when a politician is lying because the lips are moving. Is it our politicians? Or is it when the Holy Spirit speaks to me through the still small voice as I read the scriptures? And I ask myself, Heavenly Father, what would you do? What would you have me do today? Who are we going to listen to? And in the pandemic, those who had no hope of eternal life were scared witless by the possibility of losing this temporal life. And those who had the assurance of eternal life, yeah, even if I die, it's just a blink before eternity. And it dramatically changes your perspective on how we respond, not just to pandemics, but to turbulence in the plains and storms at sea and road accidents and all the rest of it. This life is just a blink because Jesus is coming again. Therefore, I'm not going to be too worried about what happens in this world. What matters is whether my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, not whether I'm you know, in favor with today's dominant political ideology. So how's this final thing going to come about? Well, we, the, the, so we have here the, the description once again, the two groups. The dragon was angry with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12, 17, famous Adventist verse, or biblical verse. Revelation 14, 12 describes those saints again. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. And I want to be among that group. And I can choose to be among that group, and I can uh, every day grow in my certainty that I'm in that group by the way that I nurture my conscience and the way that I live in harmony with God's revealed will. Simply saying, I'm going to keep my ammunition dry for the final crisis, means when you get to the final crisis, your gun is probably going to be rusty. I heard that this morning from somebody else. It's a pretty good idea, yes? We're going to save our bullets for the final crisis. Yeah, when the final crisis comes, your gun's in need of repair. It's not going to work. I'm not talking about literal guns here, you understand. So, before Jesus comes again, before Jesus comes again, there's going to be an appearance of Satan. We read about this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. Now, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, this is what Peter said. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of powers, wonders, and signs. That's how the ministry of Jesus was described at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the lawless one and the man of sin, and ultimately talks about the appearance of Satan. It says, the coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all powers, signs, and lying wonders. Now, the three words that are used, powers, signs, and wonders, is the same as that was used to describe the ministry of Jesus. But this final deception will be a lying deception. Which means that the appearance of Satan before Jesus comes again is calculated to deceive the whole world and even the very elect of God. So when Jesus says, if they say that the Christ has come and he's out in the wilderness, do not go there. If they say that the Christ has come and he's in the inner room, do not go there. He says, when the Son of Man comes, it will be as lightning comes down from heaven and is seen from the east to the west. And I've thought about, what does that mean? It means that nobody around the world, no matter what language you speak, everybody recognizes lightning when they see it. You can't see lightning and think, oh, that was just some fireworks going off. Everybody on planet Earth recognizes lightning when they see it. So when Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, it'll be as lightning comes down and is seen from the east to the west, it means that everybody will understand at that moment that this really is the Son of God coming to receive his own. But until that time, 
Satan's going to appear. He's going to manifest himself as the appearance of Jesus. The, the uh, Muslims, the Christians, and the Jews are all expecting a heavenly messianic figure to come back. We are primed for deception unless we love and know the truth. Amen. Which is why in our church here, reading your Bibles every day, guarding it in your hearts, cementing it in your heart, is important because there is going to come a day when you may be hauled before a council and asked to account for your faith. And as we saw in the pandemic, the entire hierarchy of our denomination will be of no use whatsoever in that moment. Amen. It's going to be you and your Heavenly Father standing up for what you are convicted of through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is why your faith must be your own. It cannot be your parents. It cannot be your spouses. It needs to be your own. And it becomes your own by investing time and intentionality in it. So what's going to happen when Satan comes again? Well, famous quotes here. Satan himself will appear from the book Great Controversy in the character of an angel of light. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Going on. Through spiritualism, Satan will appear as a benefactor of the human race, healing the diseases of the people and professing to present a new and more exalted system of religious faith. But at the same time, he works as a destroyer. While appearing to the children of men as a great physician who can heal all their maladies, he will bring disease and disaster until popular cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Even now he is at work in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great confl conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves and earthquakes. In every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest, famine and distress follow. He imparts to the air a deadly taint and thousands perish by the pestilence. These Visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. So the, the whole natural world is involved. And then the great deceiver will seek to persuade men, what? That those who serve God are causing these evils. The class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to, transgressions, to transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God by violation of the Sunday Sabbath. Now this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance will be strictly observed or enforced, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and to temporal prosperity. So in the final delusion, before Jesus appears, Satan will appear to humanity as an angel of life, and those who are faithful to all the commandments of Jesus, not just a few of them, but to all the commandments of Jesus, the moral law, the Decalogue, will be pressured, as in the last three years, to violate their conscience and adopt false worship, all for the alleged greater good to serve our common planetary home and to avert environmental catastrophe. And if you don't think that's what's going to happen, take a look at the news around you. The push for climate lockdowns is gathering steam. By some remarkable coincidence, they will be on a certain day of the week. And they will be enforced first on environmental grounds, but then on moral grounds. So how then do we understand in this chart that we've put together here? And you can download this from the internet. So the dominant ideology is turning out to be a globalist cultural Marxism. It's affecting our global elites around the world. The source of that dominant ideology 
ultimately is Satan acting through human agents, through Marx or through the papacy, uh, the Antichrist. The, the, the scope of ambition is no longer just global revolution along class lines or to eliminate Judeo-Christian foundations of the West, but it's global apostasy and rebellion against God. This time, the dividing line will not be economic or class-related, nor will it be racial, sexual, or anything else. It will be along the question of true worship. Who is the ultimate authority in your life? God says, remember the Sabbath day. Man says, worship any other day. Whose word are you going to listen to? The demonized group will now be God's faithful remnant, Revelation 12:7, who receive the seal of God on their foreheads. The persecutors will be those who receive the mark of the beast. They will either receive it in their foreheads, which means they're convicted of it and they do it out of their own free will, or they'll receive the mark of the beast on their hands, which means they've bowed to the mandates at the end of time. And the outcome, the outcome will be economic exclusion, no buy, no sell, Revelation 13, and then ultimately the death penalty for the righteous before, hallelujah, God intervenes with the destruction of the wicked and everlasting life for the righteous. Amen and amen. You can choose who you're going to follow. Do you follow the authorities whose greatest sanction is to take life, or will you follow the one who has the ability to give life and give life eternal? It's a very simple choice in my mind. So our time is up here. There, I want to move on to our conclusions here. Before this world existed, there was ideological war in heaven in which the nature of truth and God's character was at stake. Satan was cast down out of heaven to planet earth where that ideological war continues to this day. Yesterday in the USSR, truth was suppressed. Today, in various critical theories, such as critical gender theory and so forth, truth is simply denied and perverted, and we are being forced or required to accept lies within our society. And tomorrow, in the final crisis, once again, truth is going to be at stake. And you have to choose where you stand. I want to encourage you today to choose where you stand. Because so many people are dying suddenly and dying unexpectedly. You need to know where you stand today. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, he says, I write these things to you, dear brothers and sisters, so that you may know that you have eternal life. To have the assurance of eternal life is not dependent on the party you're in. It doesn't matter whether you're vaxxed or not. That's irrelevant to your eternal life. It matters whether you're in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is your relationship. Because that's what's going to hold you through to the bitter end. You have a choice to make today. At the end of time, there are two groups, the wicked and the righteous. At the end of time, wickedness will receive a full out, a flourishing of wickedness. Evil will get more and more evil. Men and women will do more and more unspeakable things one to another. We are witnessing in our society the steady normalization of pedophilia as the sexual revolution marches forward. If you're not aware of that, then open your eyes and just look around you. This is where this is going. The involvement of our children in sexual activity is the new social norm. So we're going to see an outflowing of evil, but before Jesus comes again, those who are righteous, they, they have a full manifestation of God's character in their lives. So you have the ripe harvest, the ripe wheat or the ripe, the ripe grapes of the book of Revelation. And you can choose today by what you feed your mind with. Are you making journey towards the ripe wheat or are you making journey downwards towards the ripe grapes? The ripe grapes. 
So there's the, the flowering of God's righteousness and the flowering of Satan's wickedness at the end of time. You can either choose to receive the mark of the beast when it is imposed, and it will be imposed. We've seen in the last three is how quickly mandates appear just overnight. Even if they're unconstitutional, they are imposed overnight. Or you can choose to receive the seal of God in your forehead and ask today for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to seal you and uh, keep you secure until that glorious day. You can choose today whether you engage in false worship, whether you engage in the false worship of the gods of this world, many of which there are, or you can choose to follow true worship and put away the gods of this world. And as we come through the pandemic, you can ask yourself, which gods had a hold over me? My career? My job? My mortgage? My finances? Social applause? Social respect? Are those the gods that hold me in line? Or do I act as a moral being in accordance with my conscience. We can all reflect on that today. It doesn't matter what decisions we made in the pandemic at this stage, but we can now look back and say, Lord, you've given us an opportunity to realize just how in bed with the gods of this world I really am, and whether I need to strip myself of the gods of this world. You can either join in the resurrection of the wicked or the resurrection of the righteous. You can either wander after the first beast of revelation, that is the papacy, ultimately controlled by Satan, or you can follow the lamb wherever he goes. You can have a seared conscience, or you can nurture a sensitive conscience from this day forward. You can live with lies, which are being forced on us today, or you can stand up for truth and speak up for truth. And this is really important because when you speak up for truth, other people gain courage from you standing up. It's not just enough to believe something. Speak it out. Because when you speak it out, somebody else gets the courage to speak out for themselves. And therefore, truth can be heard. And in our, the young children sitting in our midst today, how will they ever know what God's revealed will is if we as adults are too afraid to say what God's revealed will is? And so generations are being raised who don't know the word of God. And they live in moral confusion like in Nineveh. They do not know their right hand from their left because well-meaning Christians who just want to be polite and want to get along to, get, to go along to get along are no, no longer have the moral courage to say, thus saith the Lord. You can choose to live with lies or you can stand for truth. You can seek temporal ease and comfort or you can seek for that city whose architect and builder is God. And if you seek temporal ease, you're going to lose everything. But if you store up for yourself treasures in heaven, then when Jesus comes again, you receive uh, that heavenly home that will never pass away. It's your choice. What are you going to choose? One of my favorite hymns is... Um, once to every man and nation. We're not going to sing it here today. But I want to read some of the words here. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife of truth with falsehood, for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight. And the chaos goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. Then to side with truth is noble when we share her wretched crust, ere her cause bring fame and profit, and tis prosperous to be just. Then it is the brave man chooses, while the coward stands aside, till the multitudes make virtue of the faith they had denied. By the light of burning martyrs, Christ, thy bleeding, thy bleeding feet we track, toiling up new Calvaries ever with the cross that turns not back. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. They must upward still and onward who would keep abreast of truth. Though the cause of evil prosper, 
yet his truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. It's a beautiful song. Once to every man and nation, that's not a decision to make tomorrow. It's a decision to make today. It's a time today to covenant with God and say, Lord, I want my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I will follow the life giver no matter what the life takers may say about me or say to me. I want that home in heaven rather than that uh, suburban condo in the States because one day that's going to burn, baby, burn, but I want the streets of gold. I will stand for truth no matter what. I will speak up for truth no matter what. I will be known as a peculiar people who do not follow the gods of this world because I follow the only one living God, Jesus Christ. Once to every man and nation, it's time to choose today. Joshua said in Joshua 24 to the people of Israel, he says, when you choose you this day, who will you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. My testimony over the last year is that when you stand for truth, you make many friends, you lose many friends, but you can sleep at night with a peaceful conscience. And you can read the word of God on a daily basis and know that God is speaking to you. And you want your heavenly father to look down on you and not to say, that's my boy. You want him to look down and say, that's my boy. You want God to say to Satan, have you considered my servant John or my servant Jane and how they live a righteous life down there? You want your life to be a testament to the cosmos of the transforming power of the grace of God and the, God, the goodness of God's salvation. So I invite you today, if you want to make a decision for Jesus Christ, to take your stand with me here today and say, Lord, I want to stand for truth no matter what. Though error be upon the throne, though the scaffold sways the future, though in our midst there are cancelled brothers and sisters, yet standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Let's bow our heads before we have our closing hymn, and we will just offer a prayer of consecration. Dear Heavenly Father, on this Sabbath day, we stand with, you might say, bended knees, asking your forgiveness for our past, asking your grace for our present, and asking for the infilling of your spirit for our future. May we be known not as Americans or British or wherever we may come from, but may we be known as the people of God from this day forward and throughout all eternity. Guide us, O oh, thou great Jehovah. May we shine for you, though the light be dark, though the darkness be gathering around us. And I pray, Lord, that whatever may come our way, people will take note that the members of that congregation and those watching online, they are followers of and have spent time with the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.